Hi, and welcome to Incluse This. I'm your host, Sarah Kerwin, and this is a movement for disability equity. Today, we're talking with Tiffany Yu, and we're talking about the disability community. Tiffany is the CEO and founder of Diversability, an award-winning social enterprise to rebrand disability through the power of community. She is also the founder of the Awesome Foundation Disability Chapter, which is a monthly microgrant for disability projects that has awarded $41,000 to 42 projects in eight different countries. Tiffany is also the host of Tiffany and You, the podcast. She was appointed to the San Francisco Mayor's Disability Council by San Francisco Mayor London Breed in 2019. Tiffany comes into this work based on her own personal experiences of acquiring a disability at a young age as a result of a car accident. She started her career in investment banking at Goldman Sachs, working on over $14 billion of announced transactions. She has also worked at Bloomberg, Sean Diddy Combs, Revolt Media and TV, and a venture-backed real estate startup. She has been featured in Mary Claire, The Guardian, and Forbes, and she has spoken at the World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos. She has also given talks at TEDx and Stanford University, and she received her bachelor's degree from Georgetown University, along with her master's degree from the London School of Economics. And with that, let's dive into what disability community. Welcome to Incluse This, Tiffany. I'm so excited to finally be here talking with you today and answering the question that so many have, what disability community? So you and I met by phone last year when I initially started planning this podcast. And since that time, the podcast itself has obviously undergone many edits, reschedules, and new launch dates, which you have been so flexible and I'm extremely grateful for. Despite those barriers, here we are today. As you know, I've researched, targeted, and hand-selected the guests for this podcast in order to maintain the intent behind it, which is to provide this coalitional space where meaningful conversations can happen, shared experiences can be highlighted, and change has a chance to happen. I've seen the work that you've done and the work you continue doing to bring this community together, as well as bringing it disability to the forefront of the greater diversity conversation. When we think of disability, we often think of the literal definition of disability, right? Physical, mental, cognitive, or developmental condition that impairs, interferes with, or limits a person's ability to engage in certain tasks or actions or participate in typical daily activities and interactions. I don't think I can even count the number of times I've had to fill out paperwork or have a doctor's note speaking to my ability, or lack thereof, to fully participate in daily activities. However, does that automatically make me a member or a part of the disability community? Let's start to answer that question with a couple of quotes from a great blog post written by Andrew Polrang titled, What Defines Members of the Disability Community? This connects us back to the original conversation we had with our guest Molly Bloom a couple of weeks ago about being disabled enough. Poolrang says, if you have a physical or mental condition that you have to think about and plan around every day, then you are disabled. He goes on to write, but if I have absorbed 
One thing over the last several years of disability blogging and immersion in online disability culture and activism, it's that being one of the disabled population isn't the same thing as being a part of the disability community. So Tiffany, we can use the words disability community to reference the total population of all disabil disabled people, excuse me. We can use them to reference common characteristics of disabled people or their medical diagnosis. We can also use them to describe a small group of disabled people who have a common viewpoint or opinion about something. What do we actually mean when we use the words disability community? Tiffany, can you please break this down for us? I loved that entire intro. I mean, that was so enlightening for me. So I think what I wanted to start with is the definition of disability, which you highlighted. And for me, the way I, I phrase it is a condition of the body or mind that impacts how we go about living our daily life. Because I think that embedded within that definition of limiting, impairment, interfering, right, those all have a certain type of connotation that many people who are disabled don't necessarily, don't necessarily feel uh, affinity with that, which is why there was a part of me that really wanted to add the word systemic somewhere in that definition, right? There are so many systemic factors that are limiting us, right? And if we take a look at the social model of disability, which says that disability exists as the result of our physical uh, infrastructure and social attitudes toward disability, like if we look at disability through the definition of the social model, what we see is there are so many systemic factors that are what are limiting, impairing, interfering with us being able to live our lives fully. That was kind of point one. I think point number two is I love the way that Andrew talked about how the, the population of people who are disabled and the disability community are different. And I want to reference a piece that Professor Rosemary Garland Thompson had written for the New York Times, and the piece, I believe, was called Becoming Disabled. And one of the things I talk about in my work is that I believe that most disabled people have what I call two disability origin stories. The first is when we either acquire disabilities or if they're congenital, you know, that's the first disability origin story is, is consciousness around the diagnosis. Or, or, or when we initially have symptoms, you know, because sometimes even the diagnosis can take, can take a long time. The second is when we uh, take ownership over our, our disability narrative um, and our disability story. So I think that the difference between being part of the disabled population and being part of the disability community is rooted in getting from disability origin story number one to disability origin story number two. And to be honest, many people who have disabilities may never get to disability origin story number two. That's one thing that we talk about um, within the multiple sclerosis community, because there are a lot of people who appear to be non-disabled who are living with MS, but don't identify as having a disability or being disabled, which I actually think keeps them from accessing a very amazing community of support and this kind of kinship and understanding that you get within the disability community. The mission of your organization, Diversability, is to rebrand disability through the power of community. 
So what definition of disability community do you and your staff members and volunteers use in your work? That's a great question. I like to keep the definition of disability broad, and I like to leave space for people to self-identify as they see fit. One of the things that I'm learning is that the definition of disability actually changes depending on who or what, and by that I mean either individuals or policies or government departments, you know, define disability. And so the definition of disability is just so nuanced, right? Because what it means to be disabled to receive social security benefits might be different for what it means to be covered under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So I do want to highlight that there is nuance there. And so when I create a diversibility, for me, it is we have this shared experience of what it feels like to be socially excluded. We have this shared experience of a label disability, which to some of us um, or, or previously historically and systemically has meant something bad. And when I talk about rebranding disability, it's not necessarily changing the word disability to something different. But instead, thinking when we hear that word disability, can we think of it in a neutral to empowering way rather than, and what I often tell people is, if you take anything away from this conversation, it is how much active unlearning we need to to not associate disability with bad, to not associate disability with broken, and to not associate disability with less than, which is why I think that the definition of the word disability in itself, right, is limiting in, in itself. And so um, that's part of, I think, what we're trying to do at Diversibility, which is there has been research done that shows that uh, your keys to longevity, happiness, your well-being is rooted in having healthy relationships, in having positive um, social connection. And for many of us who are disabled, who aren't able to find community, we get stuck in a cycle of feeling socially isolated, which then lends itself to, to loneliness, which has all of these you know, social health impacts as well. So Diversibility, that was a very long-winded answer to say diversibility for us, we give people the space to self-identify as they see fit. But what I want to acknowledge as well is diversibility is a space for people who are disabled and non-disabled. And the reason why I want to mention that is because I find at diversibility, we want to meet people where they are. So what I mean by that is oftentimes, you know, if I think about who our uh, ideal community member is. This is someone who may have just recently gotten their diagnosis, you know, doesn't really have a community or maybe has been disabled their whole life. But similar to the conversation that you and Molly had, they don't necessarily have consciousness over claiming their disability yet or they don't think they're disabled enough. How can we meet you where you are? And as a result of interacting with our community members who are very proud of their disability identity, how can we encourage those who are disabled but might not claim the identity yet get to a point of feeling more empowered to talk about their disability or more empowered to claim ownership over it? So that to me is, is where I feel seeing that journey, right? If I talk about getting from disability origin story number one to number two, if I think about outside of that tagline that you mentioned, when I think about it at face level, my goal and my dream is to get as many disabled people from that origin story number one to number two, so that we can start to 
redefine what it means to be disabled to our non-disabled counterparts. I love that. That was fantastic. And I think it's so important because for someone like me, it took me a long time to diagnoses to get to a point of really owning disability as part of my identity and this process that I've gone through to bring this podcast to life and launch my business. But owning that piece of your identity is so important. And I feel like for me, when I when I wasn't owning that, I wasn't living like my true authentic life. There's this piece of me that was left out of conversations or left out of um you know, anything that we would talk about, I wouldn't bring that to the forefront. So I love the shift from origin story one to origin story two. And I love how you talk about meeting people where they are, because some people may join your group and not have disclosed yet. And I also think that sometimes, you know, we get so far into our diagnosis and we start to forget some of those feelings that we had at the beginning, those conversations that we have around disclosure. Let's go back to the diversity within this group. And you're bringing in disabled, non-disabled into diversability, which I love. There, there's just so much diversity within the disability community. And it's not just the physical. It's also a social categorization that crosses all others, right? It crosses race, gender, religion, socioeconomic status, and sexual orientation, among others. And during one of my most recent staff training sessions, the staff member asked me, how can we be inclusive of the disability community if we don't understand who belongs to the disability community and we don't know how or who is supposed to be included? What are your thoughts on that, Tiffany? Mm, That's the million dollar question, right? I mean, I think that part of, so Part of why we're called diversability is not only number one, we take pride in our disability identity, but we wanna highlight how diverse the disability community is. Disability doesn't just look like one thing. And similar to you at the staff meeting, one of the things that I have found is that oftentimes when I share my disability story, so, so one of my arms is paralyzed, and I will often have people come up to me afterward and they will they'll say something like, hey, I have ADHD, or I have diagnosed depression, or I have asthma, does that count? And I find that when, even when we're asking ourselves the question, does that count? The answer is probably yes, you know, right? Because now if you're being part of this conversation, you're realizing, oh, the fact that, you know, the fact that I have dietary restrictions um, due to a health condition I have, again, restricts or limits like what I can and can't eat. Um, I, I think what we're realizing and what I feel hopeful about is in the context of everything that's happening around racial equity, there is now more elevated consciousness around intersectionality, right? And you talked exactly about the intersectionality that exists within disability, but it's hard to grapple with, okay, uh, you can be black and disabled. You can be a woman and disabled. You can be, you can be, five years old and disabled and or 80 years old, you can be, you can have all of these other intersecting identities and still be disabled. What I find is what makes it difficult is because stigma and ableism is so pervasive in our society and in our systems, right? There are policies that are keeping 
certain disabled people in perpetual poverty, because we have all of this just so embedded within our society, what ends up happening is you have people who don't quote unquote look disabled, right? Because there may not necessarily be a physical manifestation of their disability, not wanting to disclose or not seeing enough other people to mirror back to them that it's okay to talk about your disability and be open about it. And this ends up kind of fueling into all different areas, all different areas of, of our life, from employment to um, to how we d- decide whether or not we want to get the services that we need. Um, I even think about my own, you know, my own journey of going from that story number one to story number two. And the first couple of times I shared my story of how I became disabled, there was so much pain and grief in there that I, I. I, I was really hurt, you know, and, and I was very sad in sharing that story. So I think that I, I, it took me, it took me 12 years after I became disabled to even start to challenge my own internalized ableism that I had of what it meant to be disabled in this society. Right. And so if it took me 12 years and I've been disabled for 23 years, um, if it took me that long, I, I can only imagine uh, how, and again, the root of all of this really is, is ableism and internalized ableism, how long it might take other people. And again, many people might not even, even get there because the stigma and discrimination and, and bias are so deeply rooted in our society. And there's a lot of fear there for people with disclosure. You know, we've talked a lot about that in some of our self-help groups for MS about disclosing when you're dating disclosing to get services, disclosing for employment. And the interesting thing is, and when we talked about this on episode one, is that for someone who appears non-disabled, when you look at an employment application, you can really answer, do I have a disability or do I not? You can answer either way. Is it based on a medical or is it based on your identity? How you answer that probably is based on one of those two, right? For sure. I, I think a big part of it is a big part of it is also psychological safety, right? And it it's heartbreaking to me that we have fear around being ourselves, right? And 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 I'll say, you know, for um for our 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 queer friends, I think I think for a long time and still depending on which country you live in, there is retaliation, right? And one of the things I think a lot about is I I saw I saw this on TikTok and and someone someone asked someone asked a question, you know, why do you identify yourself as identity first versus person first as a disabled person rather than a person with a disability? And um, the way this person described it was uh, if I describe myself as person first person with a disability, it's kind of like having a backpack. And what I mean by that is you can leave your backpack in your seat at the restaurant as you go to the bathroom, or you can leave your backpack at home. So the question is, can you leave your disability at home when you go out, right? That was kind of like the imagery they they uh, they used when, um, when describing person-first language. With identity-first language, I'm a disabled person. Uh, it's kind of like, I don't know, I would describe it as like a jacket on a cold day. And in order to move about the world, you need that jacket or at least in that environment. And I, and I loved that imagery because 
my disability impacts how the world sees me and how I, how I move about the world, right? Like if I go to a buffet, those environments cause me anxiety because I want to make sure that I can hold my plate and serve food, but that's difficult if there's not enough table space to put my plate down. And then if I try to balance it on my injured arm, I'm like nervous, it's going to fall. And so And so in that particular environment, like I can't leave my backpack at home, right? I'm wearing my jacket in that particular scenario. And so when we think about these like employment scenarios, that's when I think it becomes hard, right? Because so much of how our external world has treated us as a disabled person influences the lens through which we move about the world. But in that particular scenario, we we want it to be the backpack, right? We want to say, well, am I disabled or am I not disabled? Because Because technically, you know, if I'm applying for that job, I feel like I'm fully capable and meet the qualifications to to be able to produce the output that is expected of me. Wow, that I love that imagery of a backpack. As you were talking, I just kept having this image of myself in situations where I would take off the backpack, put the backpack on. And that's hard. It's very emotionally exhausting as well. Like you were saying, you have to have your jacket on. That is a necessity for you throughout your day-to-day dealings with the physical world around us, right? And we think about employment, inclusion and employment. How do we get to that point where we say, okay, well, with someone with MS, it's okay because one day they may have fatigue or symptoms may flare and they may need to be out for a couple of days, but they can work from home. And how do we kind of wrap our heads around that? The representation piece is huge. I was talking with a girlfriend of mine the other day, and she is looking for a position. And she said, I want to go to an organization that works strictly with people with disabilities, because as someone with a spinal cord injury who uses a wheelchair, I want to be around other people with disabilities. So I think that representation piece is so huge in our employment efforts, because if you have an employee who maybe doesn't see themselves represented within the company, are they going to apply to that company? Maybe not, because maybe they don't feel comfortable in that. Maybe they haven't gotten to number two in that origin story or really want to own that and go into a place where it's going to be uncomfortable and you're educating and teaching and you're the only one, right? With that, there are so many disability-focused organizations and nonprofits that exist today. I mean, I could name off hundreds. And each one of these focuses on a very specific disability, like tinier, smaller communities within the disability community. It's difficult then for other people to understand what are we talking about when we use the words disability community. You know, is this something that we as members of the disability community need to define outside of the medical diagnoses? Do we know how to talk with people about collaboration within the disability community to kind of bring those silos together? Can you talk about any work or a project that you may be working on that closes some of those gaps between each of these smaller disability communities within the larger community? Sure. I mean, there was so much in there that I wanted to comment on. So the first thing I'll say is I really love Talila Lewis or T.L. Lewis's definition of ableism. And her definition of ableism is when society and people value and place worth on a person based on their body and their mind. And I think in that conversation around worth, right, and thinking that we're not worthy, uh, depending on what the situation is, 
is really, again, inherently rooted in ableism. And so when we think about employers, I, I think we really need to do that uncomfortable work of self-analyzing, uh, is, am I ableist? <laughs> um, and, and, and I think like in all of this anti-racism work, right, many of us are confronting deeply held beliefs that we have either perpetuated by the media or the way we were raised or different interactions that we witnessed that we didn't actually realize until it came to the forefront. And so oftentimes what I tell people is the same type of work we're doing around how, how we want to be more anti-racist. I hope we can do a similar level of self-reflection and self-work to really better understand what are the deeply rooted ableist beliefs that I hold around a person's worth because of their body and their mind. Um, so that was point number one. Point number two around uh, wanting to be represented. When I was working, so I started my career at Goldman Sachs and then I, I worked at Bloomberg afterward. And part of the reason why I uh, wanted to work at Goldman was because I knew they had a disability employee resource group. And while I was at Bloomberg, I helped co-found Bloomberg's disability employee resource group. And, uh, and of course these groups are for uh, people with disabilities and allies or, or, or other employees who, who might touch disability in one way or another. I think being able to have those spaces um, is, is how we can figure out how we can better retain our employees with disabilities, right? Because we need to have those mirrors, we need to have those spaces in the workplace where we can go and and talk with other people about their experiences or how to best navigate asking for accommodations if that's needed. And if I think about why I started Diversability, I almost saw ourselves as the employee resource group for the for outside of the company. We're like the, the disability employee resource group for the world, like the world is the company, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and how can we create those spaces for us to come together and talk about that? I think in response to your question around um, large organizations that address a very specific disability, that is very needed. Again, part of the reason why I wanted diversity to be cross-disability and pan-disability is that we're so fragmented by our diagnoses. And I think exactly to how you started this conversation, people who do have disabilities uh, choose whether or not they want to be part of the community or not. And that makes it complex, right? Because if we're not all aligned of how we feel about disability, how are we supposed to create solidarity and movement forward, right? And I meet, so I meet a lot of people and I tell them about my work at Diversability. I wanna create a movement around disability pride or, or celebration of a disability identity. And I'll meet disabled people who say, uh, well, I don't agree with that. I don't see my disability as part of my identity. In that case, even though I would, I would consider them part of the disability population, they are not my core community persona in diversability, right? And so that's why I, I, I embrace this idea of meeting people where they are, right? So, so you know, the, the reason why our group is disabled and non-disabled is maybe you come in and you are disabled, but you don't, you don't identify or claim that identity yet. But as a function of meeting other people and seeing other people who serve as either role models, and I like to use Laverne Cox's term, possibility models, 
maybe you see a disabled person who's working in the corporate world and, and high up and, and really celebrates and takes ownership over their identity. Maybe that's the path you want to take. And if you saw a person be able to be successful, then maybe you might want to explore what it looks like to take ownership over your narrative. But again, meeting people where they are, it's, it, this is what makes disability so exciting and an opportunity is because you ha we have so many disabled people who don't disclose and who don't identify with the community. It does make it hard to, uh, to move things forward. Um, but again, that highlights the diversity that exists within the community. I will say one of the things I have heard, I think I saw Dredif. Someone was speaking from this organization and they've done a lot of really great work around legislation, disability legislation, and moving things forward from a policy perspective. And I asked and I said, I run this organization that's really all about celebrating the diversity that exists within the disability space. Like how can we ensure that we're reflecting that in, in policy? And what they told me was, this is why we need more solidarity in the disability community, because if there are cracks in the legislation that you're putting forward or your ideal policy, then it's not going to get passed. Right. Um, and, and I think about even 30 years after the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, we're still we're still not able to recognize the economic empowerment of the of the entire community, right? And we still have existing policies in place that make it legal to pay people below minimum wage. Um, we still have policies in place, and I believe it's getting rolled out state by state that say if you rely on disability benefits, you can only have $2,000 in assets at any one point in time. Again, that's changing with the passage of the ABLE Act state by state. I think that again, um, if if we're still holding on to these legacy policies, which once upon a time made sense, but we're seeing much more vocal disability advocates want to take action, but we're not able to create cross-disability or pan-disability solidarity, then it will take longer for us to achieve disability equity and justice. Yes, that was so well stated. One of the things I wanted to talk about was the solidarity in bringing legislation forward. So when I worked at the National Multiple Sclerosis Society, it was a very interesting experience. There were people within the organization who also lived with MS but did not disclose. Well, I was very much about disclosing given what I had been through leading up to that time. So I disclosed, I was all on board about how do we move forward efforts for people with MS. And the first barrier that I ran into was the fact that the MS Society didn't cover the injectable medication. That's usually the first medication that you get put on as an injectable. This is why it's so important for people with disabilities or even that specific disability to have a seat at the table. I've gone to DC and to Sacramento for MS policy legislation. One of my questions was, why are we not partnering with another organization that's, that needs ALS? Why don't we partner with ALS? So now we're going to the federal government, to our congressmen and women to say, hey, here's two organizations. We both need this policy. We're not going to get anything passed unless there's some joined efforts because we're putting forth piecemeal legislative and policy efforts between each of these organizations. So I do agree with you. I understand the need for them. I also feel like we could all benefit from much more collaboration between organizations to try to put forth 
legislation that can improve everyone's lives within the disability community? Uh, 1000%. I think that this is something I see in other advocacy, other advocacy movements as well, is there's a lot of, there's a lot of criticism of each other's advocacy. I'll say two points. There's a lot of criticism of each other's advocacy. Number one. Number two is I think because again, systemically, we have been systemically limited. Many of us still operate from a scarcity mindset and we want to transition over to more of an abundance mindset, right? Which is at the root of collaboration. You know, one, one plus one equals 15. The reason why I bring that up is because I think that what I am realizing and there was, there was something I heard another disability advocate say a little while back. And she said, uh, now is the, now is the best time to be disabled. And I would argue that today, as we're recording, this is the best time to be disabled. And when this episode goes live, that will be the best time to be disabled. And the reason why I say that is because I think we're starting to realize how much more powerful we are and how much more influence we have when we actually do collaborate. Right. And one of the things so I know that when you and I originally chatted, we wanted to talk about some of the advocacy work that I'm doing as part of the San Francisco Mayor's Disability Council. And I remember when we had that conversation, I was like, well, I haven't really done that much. And uh, we spent some time in a meeting earlier, kind of reflecting on what our wins were from 2020. And I drafted up a letter to the mayor about a year ago asking if she could declare July as Disability Pride Month in San Francisco, and if we could light City Hall in blue and white on the anniversary of the ADA, um, and, and, and she did. Uh, Mayor London Breed did. I mean, she signed the proclamation, and then the Board of Supervisors also declared July as Disability Pride Month in San Francisco, uh, and then we also got City Hall lit. I mean, that was a different office related to the mayor's office. But when I was talking to another friend about that, another disability advocate, he was like, Tiffany, don't downplay what that did for the city, right? Because what you did, even if you think it's small, it may have enabled other people who saw that small action of just writing a letter to maybe write their own letter about some advocacy thing that they care about, right? And so I think that there are all these trickle effects of every single action that all of us who are vocal in the disability advocacy movement are taking right now, even you creating this podcast, who knows who's going to listen? And that may empower them to go off and want to want to do something else. So again, I, I think I'm catching myself saying, Tiffany, like you celebrate your achievements and what you were able to do in the context of this, of the power that you were able to have as being part of this marriage disability council. Right. And I don't think I would have been able to get that done had I not joined the council. Right. And, and I and I have a lot of things to say about the council and how much more work we can be doing. But can I just celebrate the wind of what we were able to accomplish as that entity who did have the capacity to have that in line and, and be able to send that letter to the mayor's office? And I do think that that is absolutely empowering for other people. There's a lot of work that we do, like you were just talking about, that we don't stop and say, okay, I did a really great job today. This could have given someone else power to use their voice. Sometimes we look at the larger 
I don't know, the larger job that we have, right, as practitioners in this space, when we get kind of overwhelmed because we're thinking, oh, it could be better, I wanted it to be this, or I wanted to make a bigger impact. I have also learned in my career, we don't know how many individual lives we've touched either, and that spreads. Those individual points of of connection and conversation all spread to other parts of the community and, and bring us back together. There's a lot of magic that exists within the disability community. I read Alice Wong's Disability Visibility, and I was just reading an article, and they talk about this magic, which is on full display in this book. What do you see as the magic of the disability community with the work that you do through diversability? I love that. Um, I... I do believe in the disability magic. I mean, I think what it is, is that we we have learned how to survive and thrive in a non-disabled world. And there's a an, another one of the New York Times op-ed was written by Liz Jackson. Her piece was called, We Are the Original Life Hackers. And so we have learned how to hack our way through a world that isn't built for us. Um, And I think that the magic comes in when we are able to share, because one of of the things after after reading that post, and I mentioned I mentioned this a lot about the original life hackers is that we are life hacking our way, but we're we need to do that at scale. Right. So one of the things that I read in the piece, she talked about someone named Jaron Herman, this really incredible dancer with cerebral palsy. And when he goes to eat waffles he asks for a pizza cutter because that helps him uh, cut the waffles with one hand. And so I'm also one-handed, but I have a different diagnosis. And I thought that that was so genius, but I had never thought of it, right? And so we're all life hacking, um, but the magic comes in when we are able to be in community. And again, I think I think this is a beautiful way to kind of go back to what this conversation was about, which is the magic really comes in when we realize how much potential we have in resource sharing with each other, in sharing our individual magic with each other. And I really do believe that in community, we start to realize how much power and influence we do have to move mountains. And hopefully, you know, the person who's listening to this, that day is the best day to be disabled for them. Okay. So we are nearing the end of this, and I want to ask one last final question before we say our goodbyes. What is a disability ally, and how can our listeners become one today? This is the change piece of the podcast. What can our listeners do today after listening to our conversation to become a disability ally? That is a question that needs its own podcast. I started something inspired by my friend. I have a friend named Nicole Cardoza, and she started a newsletter called the Anti-Racism Daily. And um, I uh, I don't have the writing chops, or maybe I do, but I didn't start a newsletter, but I decided to start some start a really short-form video series called the Anti-Ableism Daily. And every single day, I share either some fact that people need to know about or some language that we're using that's outdated, or some other action that we can all uh, be better allies. But I think to be a better ally, I guess I'll say two things. One is, please get to know as many disabled people as possible. 
follow them on social media, engage with their posts, create relationships with them that are equal, right? When I created Diversability, again, we are non-disabled and disabled. The non-disabled people who are part of our community are not volunteering for us um, because I don't want them to feel good about themselves by just being our friends, right? I don't want someone to feel like they're volunteering to be my friend. I actually want to create equal peer-to-peer relationships of uh, people who care about each other, disabled and non-disabled. Um, that is actually how you change hearts and minds, is getting to know, and, and, and even I'm learning this, right, because I feel like I exist in, in my own silo, and I know I can be a better ally to my own community as well. That was number one. Number two is I think we really need to be more aware of the language we use when we talk about disability. So if I think about the latest video of my anti-ableism daily, it was about how when I tell people I'm disabled, their response is, I'm sorry. And, you know, like, what are you, what, what do you say to that, right? And then, and then people are commenting on my video and saying, well, should I say like, that's cool? And I'm like, yeah, that's fine, right? Because what, I, what I'm hoping is that when, when you tell someone that you have MS or when I tell someone that my arm is paralyzed, they're like, cool, right? Because you you even talked about how you mentioned you, you mentioned you have a flare up and you move on to the next part, but that person is so caught up on the and the on the MS, the diagnosis and, and the flare up. Um, and, and we need to actively catch ourselves there, right? Again, like the language we use to talk about disability is so disempowering. And I think that that further perpetuates narratives about those of us who don't have disabilities feel about disability, and even how those of us who are disabled feel about disability, right? This is why we have so many disabled people who aren't disclosing or, or claiming a disability identity, right? Because the way we talk about disability is so is so disempowering as it currently exists. It absolutely is. Tiffany, I'm so happy that we were able to have this conversation. I really appreciate it and thank you. I've enjoyed every minute. I feel like we could go on and on. Uh, maybe we'll have to go back to, maybe in season two, we'll have a conversation about disability ally and that will be the whole conversation because I think that would be a great conversation for listeners to hear. Because even for those of us who have an invisible disability, I'm not always the best advocate for myself with maybe family and friends in explaining that or using the right language. And that's something that we all can really work on each day. To our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about the work Tiffany is doing in the disability equity and inclusion space, please check out the Diversability website at www.mydiversability.com. And I know you also have a large community on Facebook. So where else can our listeners find you on social media, Tiffany? Those two places are great places. Um, we do we do have this Facebook community. Uh, Non-disabled allies are welcome um, and are, are encouraged to join because I think that, and again, back to this allyship point, we want people to be witness to the conversations that we're having because if you can more intimately better understand the conversations that we're having amongst ourselves, then you can go, go out and advocate and be an ally for us in the spaces that we don't have access to. Yes, exactly. Tiffany, thank you again. I wish you the best day. I'm so grateful to have this conversation with you and I appreciate your time. For sure. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Tiffany.
And once again to our listeners, thank you for spending your time with us and joining the Incluse This conversation and movement. Incluse This is brought to you by iLevel Communications, LLC. iLevel is a California-based woman and disability-owned small business committed to having critical conversations at iLevel that are necessary to move disability to the forefront of the greater diversity conversation. If you'd like to learn more about the work we're doing, please visit the website at www.ilevel.works. That's E-Y-E-L-E-V-E-L dot W-O-R-K-S. You can also email me directly with any podcast episode ideas or questions and comments at Sarah at ilevel.works. Remember to put your disability lens on when you look at the world and tune in next week for another stimulating conversation on Incluse This, the podcast that's really a movement. Take care and be well. You may not have a car, you can catch the bus or train, or maybe you push a chair, or maybe walking is your thing. You may go to work, or you may go to school, it doesn't really matter, just remember...